Welcome to the Ruby Hour, a podcast produced by our company, Ruby Riot Creatives. We specialize in video production and content marketing, and we're based in Charleston, South Carolina. I'm Shelby Ring. And I'm Madeline Rager. This podcast is devoted to interviewing extraordinary people doing extraordinary things and nuggets of wisdom that they've learned along their journey. Also, just want to give you a heads up, uh, we have potty mouths and we're talking about inappropriate things. Thank you so much for joining us for another session of the Ruby Hour. I am Shelby Ring, and I have the fabulous chef, Sean Bryan. Thank you so much for coming today. My pleasure. Freaking pumped. Okay, so let me give you the deets on who this man is, all right? So Chef Sean Bryan started a life in a two-person tent surrounded by plantation ruins in the flats of Coral Bay, St. John. And for those of you that don't know, that's one of the U.S. Virgin Islands, and it's in the Caribbean. It's not St. John. John's, whatever. Okay. So, <laughs> Thank you for all that. right. So, we're just going to nick nip that in the bud. All right. Um, so, it was in this environment that Sean's love for cooking began through roaming and foraging, literally through the local valley, fishing off his dad's sailboat, and cooking for sometimes up to eight siblings at a time. These challenges of being in an island in the middle of the Caribbean are the source of his inspiration to his innovative culinary approach. So, as a graduate of Johnson and Wales, his culinary career led him to be named in the 30 under 30 by Zagat and has been nominated for a rising star by Star Chefs and has been invited to cook at the James Beard House. Like, drop the mic and walk out of here at this point. I mean, like, literally, what the heck? Like, and, you know, I've had the pleasure of getting to know you on a personal level. We've surfed together, all of the things. And, um... Yeah, how the heck did you end up in Charleston of all places? Oh, hurricanes. Definitely hurricanes. Irma and Maria um, just came through and ripped the islands apart, and I had my um, daughter Riley on her way, and I needed to make some roots somewhere else. So Charleston was a place where I always wanted to check out. I came here, and I fell in love from the history to the camaraderie amongst chefs, uh, the love for dogs, uh, the demographic sort of being laid out like New York City, uh, the accessibility of farm to table as well as the coastal community and surfing. So definitely just brought me here and made me feel at home and now I'm never leaving. That's freaking awesome. Um, So you currently right now, you are running the show with one of my favorite culinary places in Charleston, Parcel 32. People, let me just tell you right now, if you have not gone there and just done a full out appetizers, cocktails, dinner, you know, everything is like freaking insane there. Like, I can't not go there when we go downtown. Like, I love it. And so um, how did you get tied into, you know, with rocking and rolling with Parcel, building out that menu? Like, what is your ideal? Where's your sweet spot of your cooking style? Um, so we focus on coastal Carolina, um, low country Caribbean cuisine. So we tie in that Caribbean. Um, it's really a focus on all the different food ways of Charleston and what's helped develop and make Charleston over the years, but also what Charleston is today. So that was really the inspiration. And then we really, it's in a family home, a single a single uh, family home. and 
essentially we wanted to make it feel like you're at home when you're there so a lot of shareable items a lot of coastal seafood um, and then a lot of different things inspired from all the farms that we get so about 90 percent of our menu is all local so so freaking cool i love that i feel like farm to table or marsh to table is something people like to talk about and it's like like, you know (laughs) and it's uh it's like to really take it full circle and it's like no we're really uh seeking out those local um farmers and fishermen and that's awesome and how did that tie into when you were growing up like walk me through like yeah because also we when we were coming back from surfing that one day, we're like driving down Folly Road and you're like, oh yeah, you can eat that. Oh yeah, that's really great if you, you know, this works as like a green bean substitute. Like you blew our minds with like literally seeing roadside stuff and knowing what you could eat. So what was your journey with that? So it really started in the Caribbean as a kid. Um, I was just always in the bush and when we were bored at home and we're learning school, me and my brother were like in flip-flops in our underwear just like exploring the valley, like through ruins and stuff. And sometimes we would get hungry, so we'd find something that we could snack on. Or sometimes we'd get a scrape from like kasha, which is like hooks on it, sort of thorns that like Mm -hmm. pull you in and they really rip you up. So we'd like find aloe and put aloe on it. Or we didn't brush our teeth that morning because we were little boys. And we would take um, fuzzy sage and actually brush our teeth with that, which actually, like, tore, like you would look, read about in the indigenous days, that they would use that as sort of a way to maintain um, oral hygiene. Um, and really, like, roadside, like, driving and, and, like, exploring, especially if I'm not the one driving, I really get into, like, just, like, getting an idea of what my surroundings are and what I see and sort of, like, making some mental notes on places I I want to go and go hit up and check out and it's really all about always learning you know and then there's just some basic rules you know know what you're gonna get like a hundred and ten percent don't like assume you know what it is and eat it yeah Um, if you don't gather some take it home use your field books to understand it the first time you try it test a little bit of it because there's still things even though it's edible could be growing in a toxic area mm. so you always want to be careful and then at least identify three or four different things in its habitat that really identify with it so that it helps you just confirm the fact that you identify it and those are really more so when you're doing mushroom foraging because that's like real technical yeah and that's like one of my new passions in some way but like especially the way i've gone down the rabbit hole in it right now so um and then we just try my whole life it's sort of been an incorporation into my operations um in martha's vineyard which we'll talk about in a little bit i'm sure um i really got into who i was as as a chef and really started to understand my love for foraging up there so uh now here in charleston it sort of is like the medium between the caribbean where i'm from and the northeast where i found myself as a chef and it just meets in the middle and if you go north of here you stop seeing like tropical ingredients like Mm -hmm. cassava growing wild on the bluffs of the beach here or prickly pear nepal tuna um and so many other things but then i also get things that i would find up in the northeast you know like all kinds of different mushrooms uh sea beans and lots of really cool stuff so so cool okay so if there's a zombie apocalypse uh this is your guy you want to like you know be it be like part of the the crew for that i love it um so um 
I, you know, we're always looking at in our company, like ways that we are growing, developing, refining. And, um, you know, you've mentioned um, that you've had some unique challenges of growing with the Parcel 32 family and um, and and really expanding with that team and the caliber of um, of what you're working with. Break that down for me. What's been your journey? Yeah. So restaurants in general have just been like a really taxing industry to be in in general. Uh, they really incorporate every component of business and like psychology into one yeah. operation. So um, true. Yeah, from perishable products to mental health to long hours to fire, gas. I mean, you name it, it's involved in ho- in the hospitality industry. Um, and that's a challenge on its own. And my whole career, I've really spent trying to sort of mold it into a sustainable or even regenerative industry that we can actually improve on. Um, and there's a lot of things that have worked for me and there's a lot of things that haven't. Um, Parcel 32 has been one of those operations where I've really been given everything to be able to put together my best foot forward. So from doing the build out there um, and having you know a very healthy budget to work with and knowing the longevity of the restaurant will be sustained because of the family that that owns it they're invested in it they're not just financially they're also like you know their heart is into it so those things are really all really spoke out to me and then putting a team together to actually operate it is always the hardest component of the of operating and now we're in a place where I, ha- I feel like I have one of the best teams I've ever had in my entire career but it's taken, you know, a few people. It's so some of them are still there from day one, which is great. We've had very minimal turnover, especially for like the industry standard. Yeah. And where we are now, I really attribute to the people that I put in power um, and the way that I've let them take ownership and ability to make their operation feel like it's a part of them and mm-hmm. not just like me telling them what to do. And so John Coleman, who's my chef de cuisine, who's basically the chef in charge of running the kitchen for me, um, I, I say I've been courting him for like four months before I got him. Uh, and we just became friends and he, he was looking for some growth and looking for you know more resources in what in his field and what he wanted to do and i felt like i could offer him that and at the time i was looking for someone like that in position and the fit was right the time was right i brought him on and then he's helped maintain my standards that we both share they're his and mine and we collaborate on everything we do uh, we communicate a lot more more than probably any relationship I've ever been in. Wow, which is you know a huge key to being successful in it. And um, you know, it just all sort of fell in place. Now we have you know a team all the way down to the the person who's making the salads in the restaurant could all be easily be chefs at mm-hmm. like any restaurant in Charleston. Wow, and they want to work there because of the environment. Yeah, and so the, that works really nicely. But at the same time, it comes with its own challenges, like egos. You know, everyone For has sure. their own idea of how everything should be done. Yeah. So, but and and they're not wrong. 
it's just what are we doing let's be team and let's do it the same way because we all are able and capable of working every single position and we regularly do including me working in the dish pit you know if we are short someone or they just need help we all chip in we're all team players and that's really what's helped us make the operation successful but we constantly sit down and have meetings and sort of brainstorm on how we can communicate better how we can be more on the same page so actively always listening and communicating and growing that's just unheard of i feel like in <laughs> um in the restaurant scene you know it's like to, there's always like one rogue person or like someone's just like deviating or like the there's so it's like you are like orchestrating you know um a symphony of everyone has to be a key player and if there's those slight variations there's so many layers of how do we keep a consistent experience for the people that come in and are dining with you yeah it's like definitely a day-to-day just like you have to take the approaches you know one step at a time and not really let it overwhelm you and know that tonight you're preparing for battle and battle starts at 5 p.m when the doors open yeah so um i love it's like i'm a big believer of if you know you obviously are operating in a role of leadership where you're you see the value of like truly delegating and empowering people versus what you said of oh well they're not just having to like appease what i'm expecting they're they're in their seat and they're empowered to do them um in your trajectory walk me through you know where you've cooked and how you've cooked and um you know what brought you full circle to where you are today um in your career Yeah, so I um, really fell in love with food from a young age because I grew up pretty poor and I wanted to eat like all the nice things. Whenever I'd go out to like dinner, I'd be like, oh, can I get that? And it was like the most expensive thing on the menu. (laughs) I was more interested in like the lobster and like the ribeye component of it rather than the price. Yeah. Um, I wasn't really thinking about that, but those environments really helped me solidify who I am as a chef and sort of led me through a path um, to where I am. And my mom was a midwife. Uh, She also ran a children's store, Uh, grew up really holistic. Um, You know, so I was introduced to nutrition as being important. Mm -hmm. Um, And then being in the Caribbean in St. John, especially in Coral Bay, it's very old world still. Yeah. um, And has a lot of down island influence as well as a ton of history and um, indigenous history as well with the Tainos. Um, And these things all like subconsciously influenced me as I was coming up. And then I went to uh, Johnson Wales University in Rhode Island um, and I really just did a two-year associates program because I knew food would allow me to travel and it always allow me to have a job. So I did that. I, I made sure I did good in school, so I got a lot of scholarships because I knew I'd have, I'd have to pay for it myself. Yep. So like, unlike a lot of kids, I took it really seriously, mm-hmm. and I really took as much out of it as I could, and I, I worked with the teachers that were considered the most difficult. Um, and then I made sure before I even went, I got right in the industry and started working. And I worked at a Pacific Rim restaurant in St. John. Um, and really, this was like almost those that old school kitchen environment like Anthony Bourdain would talk about a lot, um, RIP. But um, 
it was really you know a lot of hazing a lot of you know burns um and i was i was the lowest guy on the totem pole so um and it was a pretty masculine environment especially in those days and the saint john's always like 10 years behind everything Mm -hmm. and so it was good to come up in that and see like sort of like what it was like and really earn my stripes but at the same time i saw a lot of things that i wasn't really behind you know yeah um and i really wanted to be progressive and um after culinary school, I just made sure I was always working at the hardest place to get a job at. Um, and that led me through some of the best kitchens in St. John. And then I did my externship at the Ritz Carlton in St. Thomas, where I worked under uh, the chef Andrew Chadwick, who were, were worked under two of like the best chefs in the world at the time, uh, Michelle Brass, who's like the plating god of vegetables, and just like this amazing French chef that was doing technical plate ups and cookery before like anyone even knew about it. Uh, before like um, Spain blew up with gastronomic like cuisine, and yeah. it was Fran Adrian and um, Juan Marie Artsak. All these people were like. You know, Juan Marie really is another one, but that actually comes full circle. And after I did that, I actually went to legal studies at Florida Gulf Coast University, but I went with a focus on commercial real estate in an effort to understand more of the legal side of restaurants and hospitality businesses. Wow. Um, And then minored in art history. Um, And then that took me to a job in. Naples, it was like a 700 cover, like steakhouse right near the Ritz Carlton, and it was about volume. And it was about this is Naples, the, Florida, Naples, Florida, okay. yeah, yeah, <laughs> Italy. I wish, but, but 700 people, yeah, oh my gosh. and it was a steakhouse. But I learned a lot from this. So each mm-hmm. operation, I took little pieces that were important towards shaping the hospitality industry, and um, I learned how to standardize, I learned how important it was to have standard and operating procedures in place, and just like all the things to make a restaurant tick at that volume, I took those things away from it. Um, And then from there, I moved back to St. John. I got an opportunity to work at a run, a steakhouse on a hotel property that was freestanding. And it was like super high end. We were only open five days a week. So I had two days off. The pay was great. Um, And I really brought back the Caribbean into that. And then from there, I went up to Martha's Vineyard to run a boutique luxury hotel um, called the Harbor View. Um, and that's really where, at that point, I wanted to take the step into the overall hospitality, to become a hospitalitarian. Mm-hmm. And I needed to be in a boutique luxury place where they really have good ethics and food quality yeah. and execution and sourcing. And then I wanted to have all the different components that can be potential for food. So we had room service, we had major, major um, event venues. Like we did, this was the number one place in America for weddings. Um, and we did like all these high profile people, the president at the time, um, Adam Sandler. I mean, the list goes on and on. There's um, Tyra Banks. um, It's like I was impressed with the president, but then you dropped Adam Sandler, and it's like that's like a next level. He's he was super chill too. He's so so is Tyra, but um, she loves lobster rolls. That's awesome. Um, But and now you know up there, 
I brought in all local ingredients. I brought Truth and Menu back. I also uh, mandated that I was on the executive committee, which most executive chefs aren't. It's usually the food and beverage director. But since it was a chef-driven property, I required that through negotiations. And I got good at negotiations through legal studies. Dude, oh my gosh, <laughs> um, yeah. And by being on the executive committee, I was able to manipulate the um, landscaping budget. And I turned that into uh, 585 square feet of organic gardens so then we just started incorporating our own gardens the local farms the fisheries um, and then you know really just came together with this island to table concept and my best friend uh, Nathan Gould who's runs the ninth best sushi restaurant in the world right now oh yeah in Boston he we first met in culinary school and twinkle on both of our eyes for food and just like drew to each other instantly Aww. and yeah he, he's still one of my best friends and we ran this hotel together and he helped me with the steakhouse at St. John and after that I went back down to St. John because I wanted to figure out where I was going that was like true to me and spoke yeah. to me and I went down there and worked for one of the chefs that I idolized the most over my entire life I seen her run the best restaurant St. John for like 18 years and she had left her lost her sous chef before the end of the season and i said Mm. i'll come down i'll help you run la tapa um for the rest of the season uh and i'll also help like bring some modernness techniques to your restaurant as well as sort of you know professionalism and flow uh, Mm -hmm. through redesigning her kitchen um, and she actually trained under Juan Marie Artsakh. Okay. That's where one that's of the, the tie-in. Whoa. So full circle. Um, we she she wasn't really ready to because we had uh, discussed me potentially taking over the kitchen and her stepping out and just sort of being the owner and like walking the floor and being her wonderful self. Um, and she wasn't really quite there yet, which was no problem. At the end of the season, I went my own way, opened up Ocean 362, which was a really truly my restaurant and my concept from start to bottom i think i i built this restaurant out in 20 days uh got my family down there and just opened up and did island to table ocean 362 so and then from there i found out that we were going to have a baby and i went into hyperdrive um i was operating my own salt company uh, virgin salt co um, that i'd started on a small scale and then that expanded into a new operation in St. Thomas, which was in Hall Bay, and we were doing it was like on a four-acre property with our organic farming license, a one-acre coconut grove, and I started a smokehouse, and I was smoking with whole coconuts, all local seafood, um, and sort of modeled it after my best friend's smokehouse company in Martha's Vineyard. Okay, and then I was building out this restaurant and Irma and Maria came and then that's where we're kind of get here again so long story but and then you had to pivot from there oh my gosh yeah and the pivot was the key but I think like I didn't really realize how much I was affected by the hurricanes but like once we've gotten a few scares especially for that last one that was cat five um, it really just made me realize, you know, I have post-traumatic stress disorder, you know, like I, I need to find a focus and my focus is preparing for the hurricane. Um, the getting through the hurricane parts where like I have the most time on my hands and I don't really, that's where I start to like realize I, my disorder a little bit. Yeah. And then 
post though is like where I'm like, okay, into action. Does anyone need anything? What can I do? How can I help? Um, but growing up in St. John and being through like every major hurricane for the last 30 years has been definitely a preparation for me so oh my gosh that's talk about a po- uh what is a zombie apocalypse uh, so. yeah like again this is the guy you want to have on your team right here yeah. you've had not only you know practical development of you know who you've evolved as a person but even being in environments that are constantly um there's risk you know there's risk um, I mean it's constantly volatile when you're in a place where hurricanes are you know it's like hurricane season hits and like my background was cooking on term charter yachts and so it was like you know the moment that um, there was always that window where you're just like ready to buckle up and like you know pull everything down and it's it's very real Um, I love how that something that you're involved in, you are um, one of the co-founder, co-founders and vice presidents of the West Indian Chefs Alliance. Tell me a little bit about, what is that about? So um, me and Chef Digby actually started the West Indian Chefs Alliance um, probably five years ago now, I want to say. Uh, we basically modeled it after the Northeast Chefs Alliance, um, and it was in an effort to just sort of bring relevance and um, bring focus to like-minded chefs and people in the industry that were uh, working on really furthering and making um, Caribbean, West Indian food part of a national and worldwide statement, um, and really like showcasing it in a way that really highlighted the culture and was true to it you know not just like black and snapper with a mango salsa and and so that was the effort of it and we worked really hard on developing it Uh, we worked with the James Beard Foundation uh, bringing him down to St. Croix to his restaurant um, and doing a dinner down there which was a Friends of the Beard dinner uh, which then turned into dinners at the Beard House Um, I think that we've done like four dinners now Um, I actually stepped down from VP and just sort of stepped away from um, the alliance in whole whole um, in order to just sort of let it continue to flourish and grow. Yeah. Um, my mission with it was always just to bring relevance and make it a focal point. And once we were getting national media attention from like New York Times and um, Food and Wine and stuff like that, I decided that you know, it was time for me to sort of back away. Plus with opening up parcel 32 and, um, really just having a daughter and being here in Charleston, I had my focuses. (laughs) So, uh, at that point, uh, Digby is still, um, operating and managing the Alliance as the president. So that's so cool. I just, I, that really, I appreciated that because I feel like the Virgin Islands, there's either a stigma of like St. Thomas is like, oh yeah, you go there on a cruise ship, and yeah. it's just like <laughs> one of those exploited spots. Yeah, um, it is. So I appreciate like that angle of like you know that's such a grassroots thing to create like hey like let's let's all band together and like it's challenging to find that unified front in the Caribbean. So it is. It is. I've found that through multiple different outlets, too, in the Caribbean, is just it being hard, being on isolated islands in some regard, um, to really come together as a community or an island. Like, I'll always say, like, if the whole Caribbean created their own 
soccer team for the World Cup. They'd like dominate World Cups over and over and yeah. over again because of all the talented players that come from it all. And yeah. it's sort of like cricket. The West Indian uh, Cricket League is one of the best in the world that has won multiple, multiple championships over and over. And they're like, the team to go after and uh yes they just we we got to get behind those types of things uh like these alliances to help you know come together and really support the community and just showcase what we have to offer in a true and honest way yeah where it's not just like the americanized like <laughs> here's what you would expect from a tropical vacation yeah, and cheeseburgers and, in paradise yeah oh no oh no <laughs> don't get me started me either i think i have ptsd of listening to those like a mix of kenny chesney oh, and oh, jimmy buffett's uh she said it. yeah I, jimmy buffett's not so bad i just have this thing i like i see a blue chair and i just want to throw it no oh no, yeah I, just, I, I see blue chair rum and i just want to throw up no it's so <laughs> funny no it's all it's all good whatever people need to like you know they're like oh my gosh like we would have people come down and they wanted to go to every place that kenny chesney had created a song around you know so it's like go over to yoast and gotta go see you know so i actually cooked for kenny a bunch okay um and yeah yeah, I like, of course you I did. like Keith Urban a lot better. Let's just put it that way. That's so Keith funny. Urban's oh, my man. gosh. Kenny, you know, no, you know, he's just unfortunately been surrounded by a lot of people that I think have just used him for who he is as a famous person. Yeah, and it's really worn on him. As a, in, well, and he's like a opinion. generous person. When um, the when Hurricane, well, yeah, I mean, it was it during Maria? And then he, like, lined up a plane to, like, get supplies. Yeah, I mean, down. he was definitely a highlighted individual of it because yeah. of his fame. But, like, sure. uh, St. John in general, um, every time there's hurricanes or anything like that, the community just comes together and there is such a wealthy um, population on the island because two-thirds of its national park so all these people build these houses around it that are just insane whether it's like Bloomberg and stuff or the actual money behind Bloomberg sure. um, these people all come together and they really care about the community and they yeah. have good intentions it's just really hard for the money to go to the right places or be managed by the right people yeah. all the time. And Kenny's been a huge part of helping uh, the Caribbean all the time, and I think most people are super grateful of it. I think that a lot of us uh, locals from there, it's just hard for us uh, in terms of how it's changed the tourism industry, where it is those individuals that are like, oh, which seat did Kenny Chesney sit in? Yeah. You know, can yeah. we get, what did he order? And it's like, dude, that's there's a lot more, and like, like he doesn't like this place. Chicken lobster all night. Literally, Midwell steak, by the way. All right. All right. There you go. (laughs) New York strip, Midwell, and a lobster. All right. So if you want to eat like Kenny Chesney, a giveaway from this podcast episode, uh, that's what you can go order. Go to Parcel 32 and order that, and we're going to see what's going to happen. No, just kidding. You're going to make him relapse and get scared. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Um, Come get our our 38-ounce ribeye, though. That thing Uh, is beast. uh, I just like that octopus dish. Yeah, that that's really like that has a lot of heart on it too. Um, the the sauce underneath that octopus dish is sort of like it should be our national dish in the Virgin Islands, but we call it uh, potato stuffing or potato stuffing. I uh, yes I. You know what I'm saying? He was born here. Yeah, he's from there. <laughs> so. 
We we would do like um, take boniata potatoes and we would do a sofrito with it and then we do a little bit of thyme um, as scotch bonnet hot sauce. I usually do like a nice emulsified one with um, so mango and pineapple in it and do uh. a pineapple ferment. And then we mix all that together with a little bit of tomato paste and it sort of makes it look like sweet potatoes. Yeah. But it's like on a much more savory side. And then we put that in a casserole pan almost once we make it almost like um, mashed potatoes and then we bake it again so it's stuffing. Oh my gosh. But badness. I think you need to have your own podcast and just explain each dish so people can be like, oh, I'm going to go to sleep in a deep relaxation and be like, <laughs> well, tonight on the menu is going to be, I mean, it's like, that sounds insane and I'm, we're going to salsa dancing tonight and I'm going to be like, wait, y'all are closed on Mondays, right? Yeah, we're closed ah, on Mondays. Why? It's like the Chick-fil-A of King Street. You know, you're like, <laughs> I'm really hungry right now. And you're like, it's Sunday. Yeah. Why do uh, you got to be all conservative and like have good ethics and shit yeah. yeah no that's we've got to make them work seven days a week uh, that's part of the reason why we have low turnover because really we, yeah i mean just wow. creating yeah. a schedule that's sustainable and yeah. an environment that's sustainable and then yeah. also paying appropriate wages that's right you know i think the lowest person on my payroll gets paid like the highest person at most restaurants wow. around here that's and that's awesome. why we're able to keep people it's also why we don't have a problem hiring people like all these other places around yeah here. because we got people on backup just one after another that's yeah. ready to come work there and they're like talented yeah so what a beautiful business model because it's like i feel like you know i mean um my partner chris you know for people that aren't familiar with me personally you know he's in the seafood distribution industry so he's like Homie. He's he's the backdoor man. Yeah. I'm not going to make a joke about that. Um, and and he uh, <laughs> and so Just he's constantly you know he knows all these kitchens and knowing what goes into it. And it's so hard to keep people. Um, you know, there's everyone needs help, and we are such a, a food driven community. People come to Charleston because they want to eat, they want to drink, they want to immerse themselves in an experience. And so that is like amazing that you know it's like okay how can you become the most attractive restaurant in charleston and it's like for the people that are in the industry yeah and it's like provide stability compensate people for their time for their energy for their genius yeah. and make them feel like it's part of their part of the operation yeah and then also maintain and showcase through your work ethic and just your ability to get down on your hands and knees and and be a step stool for everyone yeah and and then you don't need as many people too and yeah. my labor's actually down so that's so awesome because it's like yeah i mean uh, we could spout statistics about the most expensive thing you know it's like how much does it cost to bring on a new client versus maintaining a client relationship so from a staffing perspective yeah to keep somebody on and maybe they're paid a higher premium um, you know for them to be there but at the same time how much energy goes into if one person walks away and then everyone has to pick up the slack of the learning curve for the new staff as well as you know the time it takes to get them up to speed yeah. and it affects everything so that's like that sounds you know it's like that's such a high energy to be able to be in that environment it also helps in terms of its own marketing too because then you have your mm -hmm. actual employees speaking wow. highly about you amongst wow. the community yep. so that's oh. really attracting for people oh that's so awesome that's 
Yes, we like that. Um, so I love that something that you mentioned was uh, one of your the best. What's the best advice that anyone has ever given you? And oh, oh yeah, we did our disclaimer if there's cuss words and things in this. Yeah, we're good. All right. Yeah. So what's the best advice that anyone um, has ever given you? Uh, fuck the bullshit. What does that mean to you, Sean? It's like, so you can really apply it to almost anything. Um, and really, it comes down to just not becoming complacent with, you know, like, don't don't subside to your standards. Don't don't be less of something because of the environment they're around. Um, don't allow it. And when you do is when you can't stop it and it becomes a chain effect and just keeps falling over like dominoes. Um, but if, if you can start to focus on the positive around you and what you want to create, then you can do it, you know? And if you just like stand up for yourself, take care of yourself, and put yourself first, then you can put all the people that you really care about that you want to put before yourself. You can truly do that. Mm-hmm. So it's it's very difficult, and it takes regular daily reminders. And I think whether you post credos around your restaurant that sort of like you know go in line with the standards that you want to uphold, you're able to maintain it. But it really just takes a mindset and reminding yourself to maintain it. But that's fuck the bullshit. I mean, I kind of want that tattooed across my forehead and uh, backwards so I can see it every time I look yeah. in the mirror. I mean, that's you like... You can just write it on your mirror. All right, well, just... Okay, not on... Not, not on here. your forehead. On the mirror, on the not mirror. on the forehead. Take a note of that, Madeline, please. Okay. No, that's... that's. I mean, that's like drop the mic material to recognize just because people are complacent or they're not, you know, if they're not upholding a certain standard that when you're in integrity, you know, if you know that you expect things to be done a certain way it's like no don't tolerate that and like i think um you know we just went and and visited a friend after we filmed in north carolina and you know they're uh dog trainers and one thing that she taught me is she was like you know we get what we tolerate and that's something i've heard from tony robbins as well but it's like if you're frustrated at people are doing a slack job or whatever it's like you somehow have set the standard of either not speaking up when you saw little glimpses of that becoming and growing and yeah we get what we tolerate yeah and your frustration just rubs right off on them yeah and then they start turning into you it's almost especially in kitchens but also Mm. with training dogs because i love dogs love training them too um but it's it's like you who you are is who they mirror and um Man, I mean, complacency is, like, the key to all that, I think. And and that's just where if you can change a sense of complacency to and uphold the standards you want through really addressing it when it happens, then you, one, reduce the stress that you deal with, which is probably, like, the number one thing in the world that's, you know, making people sick, you know, mentally, yeah. physically, um, you can change your world in front of you so i love it 
what are practical things you said, you know, to set up reminders throughout your day? Because it's not something that's necessarily like, oh, you just wake up one day and, and you like know how to yeah, get out of your work. own way, right? <laughs> um, what are things in your own life that um, are simple triggers that inspire that, that line of energy? So I think one, social media can be used in like positive ways, although it has a lot of negatives to it. So follow people that inspire you. Um, Also, you know, like follow people who help set the your positive mindset set that you want to have daily Mm. Um, I have a friend here who is my chiropractor and every morning she writes down her mantra that she wants for the day and that's an amazing thing and guess what I don't do it and I told her I was like it's like you're writing my mantra every day I just read your Mm. mantra and then I'm good to go so that's an easy way to do it and then also um, you know credos are amazing tools you know I learned that at the Ritz Carlton when I was you know doing my externship there and they just had an amazing like whole shell and to their whole operation and they had I took so much away from how they manage their properties especially this was in the time when it was still like at the height of hospitality in mm-hmm. the whole world yeah um, and I remember their credo and I was like you know I need my own credo so what's a pro- what is break down what a credo is so a credo is really like your standards essentially it's mm-hmm. it's what you believe in what applies to your surroundings is in like my kitchen um, you know it's it's not about cooking for me it's about cooking for guests it's about every day trying to be mm-hmm. your best to try to achieve perfection but also knowing that there is no thing as perfection you know um, and it's just really like it's a journey and it's evolving you know it's it doesn't stop changing and it doesn't stop growing and as long as you understand that then it's not as complicated or you don't feel so pressured to like get it all out at once it's just something that you build and um your mentors help you help influence it you know so like people like levon wallace one of my mentors um really helped me understand humility and how to cook for my heart and how to cook for nostalgia instead of just cooking you know like oh this is super badass and Mm -hmm. this is like this Mm -hmm. is you know sort of that smug uh culinary industry of like oh i'm doing a film man and doing this molecular gastronomy (laughs) but it doesn't taste good you know or it doesn't work you're taking something it looks fancy as shit but i don't want to eat it again yeah and and like you just took something that was already perfect and then you actually made it less perfect Mm. if you will yeah you know like the farmer already put all the energy into it. You taste it, and let's just use a peach, for example, because this place has some of the best peaches I've had in my life. Um, you don't need to do anything to it. You can just, like, highlight it and uplift it, and it's sort of like how you become a good leader in a kitchen. You, It's not about you. It's not about how good you are. It's about how you can get your team to strive to be better every day and understand your mission and your operations mission and cook for people and not just cook for yourself. So, and really be a step stool, you know, and help uplift everyone because then you really achieve like Mm -hmm. camaraderie, accomplishments, productivity, and that just keeps rolling. I mean, and how much does that translate into 
anybody doing anything they want to scale and offer good in the world. You know, whether you're, I mean, we were film, you know, we film and yet it's like, you know, if I want to create amazing experiences for clients, if it's all about me and how great I do it. And it's like, if I believe that I'm the shit, I'm the top, how can I ever, um, create more momentum and help more people's lives and have that scaling capacity like you're describing. If you're the number one chef and blah, 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 it's all about you, well then, dang, the moment you step away, that's a castle made of cards. Yeah. You really can't grow from there. Um, you you can get so far, but eventually, um, when people start digging, they'll find that there's nothing there, mm-hmm. you know, and... I think that the way that people break sort of out of that shell is one through hard lessons in life. You know, you have to hit rock bottom. You have to fall on your ass. Uh, the way that I've always helped people grow into that is by stepping away, like literally just sort of being like, all right, you're ready. You need this. You know, I don't even really tell them what's going on or that there is an angle to that because I do feel that they're capable and they can do it. But I also feel that if I don't step away, then they'll never realize what I actually did to get there. Um, And so sometimes whether it's just in one day and allowing them to have a shitty service and to see that they Mm -hmm. don't know everything, that helps them realize it. Time, just coming of age helps. And then like if it's more severe, like literally like letting go completely, you know, like almost like a relationship, you know, if you really want to test how strong it is then sometimes the best thing to do can be to let it go and see if you find each other again ah yeah no that is that's it i mean that's there that's there's so much uh sweetness to those words yeah it's really about love you know because it's about if you can do that then you really care about someone because otherwise you just become an enabler yeah, and we all seen that shit too much. Yes. So. Oh my gosh. Speaking my language over here. <laughs> I love it. Um yeah, I mean yes. Um I want to close and bring things to a full circle of um Sean, what's your happy place? Oh, my happy place. Um it's really the ocean. It's water. Um for me spearfishing I'm not the best at it, you know, and I don't think that's important in life. A lot of people are always chasing that. Um, but I've always been around water and it's always surrounded me. And being underwater just has like a mystique to it that just sort of cancels everything out and you're just able to be completely in the moment in your surroundings. And so that's definitely my happy place where you can just see things that you've never seen before, even if you've been swimming there like 80 80 times i always find new stuff i love that that's that resonates with me as well and we just had an underwater photographer um on the podcast and that was literally like that's like a same heartbeat you know when people have that water baby you know you're like there's something the moment you're the sound the like sensory deprivation and it's like you're just like laser beamed into 
the here and now. Yeah. I love it. Oh. Um, okay, so Sean, how can people get in touch with you or follow along or you know, how can they cross paths with you? Well, I'm a pretty open person, so um, you can follow me on my Instagram, which I interact with on the regular. Uh, that's at Chef Sean, S-H-A-U-N, Brian, B-R-I-A-N. And um, it's pretty straightforward. Um, Facebook, not so much. Yeah, I know. <laughs> you, can, you can connect with my grandpa on there. Um, uh, Twitter, hell no. Yeah. Um, not you, doing any of that. No, I'm good. Um, you can find me at Parcel32. That's um, right. I, we have a closed door kitchen, but our doors are always open. So mm. I always tell people, feel free to come say hi, you know, make sure you make yourself known so we can come show some Parcel32 love. Yes, y'all um, do such a good job with that. Thank you. Uh, it, take, it takes a village. So get in the restaurant. Um, try that octopus dish that he was talking about. Um, try some of their desserts are some of my favorite things that I've ever experienced in this lifetime. Sean, thank you so much again for taking the time to be with us. Um, It was a blast. Oh, yes. And um, for all of our listeners out there, thank you so much for tuning in. And we will see you next time. 